Paramhansa Yogananda, a biography by Swami Kriyananda. Talk 12 by Asha Praver. May 8, 2012. Copyright 2012. Ananda Church of Self-Realization, Palo Alto. I'm going to remain seated, so if you need to adjust your chairs so that you can see me, if you don't mind. I've enjoyed giving these classes from a seated position. <laughs> All right. Um, just to remind you, there won't be a class next Tuesday because I'll be going up to Ananda Village a little bit early. So no Tuesday night class next week. And also, um, we are starting, a, in June, we're starting a Wednesday night class, Death, Dying, Karma, and Reincarnation, which promises to be a lot of fun. So if you would like to take two classes a week or even switch trains, it would be okay. Um, in, Tuesday, in June, we'll start on Tuesday nights back with the uh, spiritual warrior class, which is really the, uh, the fundamentals of being a devotee class. Okay, so now, any comments or thoughts? Do we have a, a question microphone sitting anywhere? There it is. John has it back there. Does anybody have anything they need to say before we start? Want to say? Now we are number 24. About Master, he laughed readily, but when he chose to be serious, no one could make him even smile. His control in such ways was remarkable. I never saw him succumb to hilarity. It's sort of an interesting uh, comment, isn't it? Um, I, most of us, you know, most of the time are more or less in control of your emotions, but I guess um, I, I, I found it a sort of an odd one. You know, I didn't, I didn't tune into it as immediately as I did some of the other qualities. But I guess Master was... I, the only thing I can think of when I refer to this was some instances I've seen with Swamiji, um, which were ver- have been very notable, and I'll give you one in particular. There was a man, and we were having a discussion about the Shakespeare songs that Swamiji wrote. And... Uh, how some of them are, you know, sort of flippant little love songs and things like that. And there was this conversation about how they weren't really appropriate songs for Swamiji himself to sing, but then various other of the male singers could sing them really quite adequately because, and then then the conversation got, you know, in a very teasing sort of way because certain individuals especially were, you know, very much had a character very much like that and it was sort of all in, quote, good fun. <clears throat> but I noticed Swami did not participate at all. I mean, just, he totally refused. And it's not that he doesn't ever participate in that sort of thing, because he has often, but he just refused. And then after it had all died down, he sort of spoke seriously to the person that everybody had been teasing and assured him that that wasn't how he saw him. And that he'd sort of felt, you know, this just slight undercurrent of um, unkindness or insensitivity in the way the teasing was going, and there was no, just no chance he would participate in it. In one situation, I myself put him sort of in a slightly awkward spot um, by implying... Uh, it, was, it was accidental. I was just giving a little impromptu speech, and I, it wasn't very well thought out. And I said things that could have been construed as a little bit self-serving on Swami's part. I mean, it was not my shining hour, let's just put it that way. But it was very interesting, because Swami's response to me was quite dignified, but very distant. And it wasn't until some months later that he, he brought the subject up. But I had observed at that time 
that he, he did, he, then again, he did not allow himself to be swept into an energy if he didn't feel that energy was appropriate or spiritually serviceful or, or what, for whatever reason, he would just hold himself back from it. He didn't necessarily make a scene about it, but he absolutely would not participate. And so thinking about that experience with Swamiji, I think that's what Master is saying here. Swami is saying about Master, because sometimes, again, I'll think of my experiences with Swami, he'll be having a more serious discussion and somebody will make a joke. And they'll just not be in tune with the flow of energy and they'll make a joke. And if it's not where Swami wants to go, he just won't go there. You know, it just, he'll just sit and wait until that energy has passed and then he'll keep the energy moving where he wants it to go, which gradually teaches you when you're with him to be very careful about what you initiate, you know, to just make sure you're on the right wavelength. But he says that when Master was being sensitive, uh, serious, you couldn't even make him smile. Because, as he says in other places, Master was always in command of the energy. Because everything that was happening, no one ever crossed his path except for divine purpose. So whereas other people would be tuning in on many different casual levels, Master never tuned in on any level except the, the, the highest spiritual plane and would act in accordance with what was, ever, what was beneficial and what was needed from that point of view. So if he had a point to make or um, a, a lesson to impart to someone, he wouldn't allow anything to deflect him from that. He wouldn't let himself be drawn away. He would just stay right where he was supposed to stay and nothing could stop him. That's what I believe Master meant here, Swami meant here. I was, a, not too long ago, I was laughing about something and I became, I had read this. No, it was, it was before I had read this, but I became conscious of the fact that I couldn't control my own laughter. You know, that, that word hilarity, you know, sometimes it, it doesn't happen that often, but every once in a while you start laughing and you can't stop laughing. You just don't have the self-mastery to choose your state of consciousness at that point. So I think many people who perhaps um, live more impulsively than we live probably find themselves in that condition a great deal of the time, whether it's sadness or, or tears or laughter or whatever it might be, but that, that we're not masters of our own emotions, that our emotions sweep over us and we don't have the self-mastery to, you know, just calm down, center ourselves, and choose again what we would do. So in that sense, uh, when you think of it beyond mere laughter or seriousness, but all the different emotions that, that sweep over people... Um, that he had complete control over his emotional state at all times. And that, he, and that there were times when even a smile was not appropriate, you know, if he was trying to make a serious point. I remember situations with Swamiji, for example, where he was being stern with someone, and that would make someone else uncomfortable, and they would try to diffuse the stern energy with something to, to take the heat off someone. But Swami knew what he was doing, and he would always pull it back. You can, again, imagine such situations happening with Master where he knows what he wants to happen and he's going to make it happen and he's not going to let anything small take him away from it. It's an interesting point. It's not absolutely as big as some of the others, but nonetheless, it's still important when you think about him. Um, any, any comments or thoughts? Because we'll street past it. His generosity extended far beyond mere money 
or material gifts. It included also, for example, allowing others to have the last word, deferring to their opinions, applauding whatever good they did. Um, Having a generous heart is a very um, divinely inspired quality. And thinking in terms of having a generous spirit is a, is a, really, um, a really beautiful way to think about the spiritual path. And this one, when Swamiji put this in here, I just thought it was a, a, a really marvelous thought. It's also, just speaking again from my own life, it's something that as I was growing up spiritually... I began to understand how having a generous spirit um, was a really fundamental spiritual practice. And it isn't just a question, and of course it is a good idea to be generous with the money that God has given you, um, you know, within practical limits, but to be generous still is a very good thing. Um, but there's so many more aspects of ourselves. We can be generous with our, with our good mood. We can be generous with our encouragement. We can be generous with our support of others. We can be generous with our time. You know, we can be generous with our hospitality. We can be generous with our talents. There's just so many different ways that generosity can flow through us. And the opposite of that, which is always thinking about, you know, what is mine? What am I going to get back? That I have limited quantities of time and energy. And if people ask too much of me, I always have to be thinking about myself and always weighing and measuring. It's a very conspicuous quality when people are, you know, well, you know, I, I loaned you $3 for that soda and a week later you get a little note reminding you that somebody loaned you $3 for a soda. And yes, it's nice to keep your debts, but it's also nice to think if I loan them $3 for a soda, I don't have to ask for it. I can just let it go. And just to have that feeling about things. But what What Swamiji also says here about Master, it wasn't just his money he gave away, that he had, he was in charge, he had all the authority he needed, and yet whenever it was possible and harmless, he allowed other people also to shine. He he allowed the spotlight to go to others. He was generous with the spotlight, is another way of saying it. And if there was no reason to correct, or no reason to have the last word, it's Having read this, I, I watch because I'm engaged so much of the time in dynamic conversation. And oftentimes there is one more thing that a person could say. But then you have to ask yourself whether you need to do that or not. Whether you always have to finish the subject with your own words. Or whether even if there is something more to say, you just want somebody else's ideas to stand and not have it always be your own. I'm the first to admit this is not something that comes naturally to me. But having thought of it as a characteristic of master, I've tried to be more observant in situations. Is it really necessary to say more? Or can you just let, as he says, someone else have the last word? And then they, or or if somebody else says something that's also your idea, or maybe you already said it, Swami has all this in uh, living wisely, living well, I think. Sadhu beware, that's where it is. He talks about it at great length. He says, why do we always have to draw the attention finally back to ourselves? And, and, and the fact that Master didn't do that is very interesting because you might think that in his position to teach everyone, you would always want it to come back to him. But he also wants it to you know, be 
other people to have a sense of confidence. Over the many years that I've worked with Swamiji, I've observed how many times he asks other people's opinions and then listens attentively and then later will say so-and-so suggested. And he, he did it so skillfully for so many years <laughs> that I actually thought he wanted my opinion, that he actually needed it, you know, <laughs> because he had the capacity to make us feel that we had something valuable to contribute. And in truth, you know, we all do. But the art of helping other people to respect their own contributions and to feel that they do have something to contribute also helps magnetize out of them that contribution. And so it's not only an act of friendship, but it's, a, it's good business because it, it helps people to be able to come more and more into confidence. And maybe not every idea that they have is the best idea, but the more confidence they have in the ability and opportunity to speak, and the more then it all feels like we're doing it together. And it feels less and less, even when Master was alive, like it was all about him. And these also help you to, to get a genuine feeling of what Master's personality was like. Um, because sometimes people who don't know him um, try to, they, they, they make him more and more stern and more and more of an authoritarian figure. And even whereas Swami concedes here that Master was always in charge and his magnetic, his leadership magnetism was just, uh, you know, dominated every situation, he nonetheless worked with that in a way that was very respectful to others in a very, very practical way. And it helps us to feel um, what he wants from us also. You know, he wants us to be able to speak our minds and say what we feel and be heard and listened to. It's not so um, naive on our part or wrong on our part also to, to help others to come to that because Master himself did so. Uh, and he was always in control of himself, so he knew when it was necessary. And if it's not necessary to correct, why correct it? You know, just as simple as that. Okay? That sadhu beware, that was what I was trying to remember. There's a whole big section on that. He never judged anyone. Judgment he left to God. He was truly a friend to all. That's very subtle, isn't it? You know, because he had the capacity to see what everyone was doing. He could see both the past karma that brought you there, the present karma that you were living in, the consequences of your present action. But judgment is a whole different reality. Judgment imposes upon people the idea that they are that there's that they have in some way, um, what would you say, that they're that they are less because of what they have done. And it's a very fine line because Master certainly didn't condone wrong action. And it was not as if he was never stern. But judgment has a whole different quality to it. There's that, that d- dismissive quality that, that attempts in some way to uh, crush or diminish somebody else's uh, state, their well-being, their future, their optimism. Um, and he had no... Judgment always comes when within oneself there's some um, lack of... of Calm acceptance of a certain reality. That's where judgment comes from. And they say we only judge that which we ourselves have not yet overcome. One of the reasons Swamiji, or I think it was he who explained it, if we're uncomfortable about a certain quality in ourselves, when we see it manifested in others, we have a desire to hide from it. 
We don't, we don't want it to be presented to us because if it's presented to us, it reminds us. So there's a very strong force that goes out of us to just kind of push it out of our lives, to not just call it a mistake, but to call it wrong, you know, to call this person incompetent or stupid or something like that for behaving in that certain way. And we, we're no longer in control of our own feelings in that, in that moment, we're dividing the world up into that which is acceptable and that which is not acceptable. And it's um, the heart becomes engaged strongly in likes and dislikes. Judgment involves a strong dislike feeling from the heart. The fine line in this is that sometimes people do things that are unwise. They're just unwise in terms of their own ha- unhappiness. They might be unwise in terms of whatever it is that we're trying to accomplish but to be able to discern that which is expansive and positive and upward moving from that which is not, is not the same as judging it. As Swamiji sort of went, traced the progression for me once, he said, someone makes a mistake and then you declare that mistake wrong, you know, and, and then that wrongness begins to be the definition of the person himself. And a mistake did happen. You don't have to say as some people try to say, that everything is perfect and whatever you did was exactly right. Because many times what people did was a mistake. It was not wise of them to do it. But the the most interesting aspect that Swami himself, you know, put forward, when we went through the time of of the lawsuits that we went through, especially the second lawsuit in which Swami Kriyananda's character was attacked, viciously attacked, and in, with a great deal of skill and an enormous amount of energy, um, people don't realize that um, anything filed in court is exempt from the libel laws. So you, yes, if you write a declaration and file it in court, you can't subsequently be charged with libel because it's evidence in court. So therefore, in the effort to destroy Swami's character, the attack took place through, through papers that were filed in court because then we had no defense about whether... You have to wait till the whole legal process goes through to find out whether it's true or not. And many people are so naive that they imagine that the individuals write those documents. Of course, they don't write those documents. The lawyers write those documents. And they write them for extremely specific reasons and they know exactly how to write them so that there's an enormous amount of innuendo and an absolute paucity of fact and it looks as... Um, uh, damning as possible, and so on and so on. So when all of that sort of happened, and it came out of left field because, because it was groundless, and so therefore it came completely out of left field. There was no context for it within Ananda life at all, except suddenly we were being told that all of Ananda, including Swami Kriyananda, was really a sham religion, and that's a quote, and that we were all just scum. Um, and Swami's response was a very interesting one. Um, he had two, two responses. One was, you know who I am, you make up your mind. And the second one was, even if what people are saying about me is true, he's, essentially this was how he said it, but not quite this explicitly, I've always stuck by you when you were in trouble. <laughs> you know, if I'm suddenly in trouble, you know, the, 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 a, a real friend figures that uh, my friend needs help. Instead of using the opportunity of, oh, well, you're, you're behaving badly, I'm just going to throw you off the train. 
And it was, you know, it was a very uh, startling thought. And that's the difference between judgment and merely observing. Oh, well, my friend is really acting in a way that is so contrary to his own interest and against his own ideals. Instead of judging him, what needs to come out of me at that point is compassion. Because if he ever needed a friend, he needs it now. And maybe the friendship has to be at a distance, depending on that person's energy and actions. But nonetheless, when you judge them, then you decide they're beyond the pale. Once somebody has been judged, what happens? It's over. Case has been decided. Judgment has been rendered. They're guilty. And that's that. We just don't deal with it anymore. But when you're perceiving and then helping, that is an entirely different reality. And God will take care of it. You know, he doesn't need us to punish one another because God will take care of it. He left the judgment to God. Even Master, as the guru, he left the judgment to God. It's, just, it's a very interesting and extremely important thought because the impulse to expunge from your world qualities that you would like to expunge from yourself is a, it's, a, it's an enormously um, instructive tool in self-understanding. What causes me to react? And it's, it's really fun in the community to watch, in a sense, because everybody has a different... You know, some people get really upset by rudeness. Others only get upset by, you know, romantic liaisons that are inappropriate. Others get upset if there's any... Um, stinginess with money. Others get, you know, others get upset when somebody talks too loud. I mean, it's just like everybody has a point and, and then they'll be extremely at ease with other faults that could drive your best friend crazy, but they don't bother you. I was just remembering uh, Jacqueline, who many of you knew, who lived here for so many years, and her husband Vasudeva. Vasudeva uh, died about six or seven, eight years ago. Vasudeva was born and raised in New York City, and uh, he had a very New York City personality. Um, New York City, a, J- a Jewish man from New York City, and he, he fit the role pretty much. And his wife was very gentle, very soft-spoken. They, they were devoted to each other, but they had very opposite personalities. And one day she said to me, she said, I've just spent too much time being embarrassed by his behavior. She said, he's from New York. This is what New Yorkers are like. It doesn't embarrass him. Why should it embarrass me? <laughs> and she just, you know, finally got that this, all this time she'd just been projecting out this reality that simply wasn't his reality and wasn't really everybody else's reality either because you knew who he was. He was Vasudeva. He was raised in New York City. This is what he was like, you know. Frank, brash, you know, really forceful with what he said, but absolutely as sweet as he could be underneath. But when we find ourselves uneasy and feel that somehow we have to do something about it, we have to come back to that realization. You know, it's all in God's hands. People's karma will just work itself out. We don't have to, we don't have to be part of their karma. We can just trust. You know, it may not happen now. It may not happen tomorrow. It may not even happen within our own discernment. But it will happen. Because karma is karma. It always is. It doesn't need us. And we don't want to get more karma by getting so embroiled in someone else's. That's the other part of it. It's just pure self-interest not to let things get to us in that way. Okay, any comments or thoughts on that? So remember how Swamiji wrote about going to Assisi for the first time and meditating in the Portuncula? He wrote this in one of his books. 
first time he went to Assisi in this life, and he sat in the Portuncula, which is the little tiny church that Francis rebuilt and where his monks, he lived with his monks. And now that little church that he rebuilt is a tiny building literally inside of this huge cathedral in Assisi. So you go into this huge cathedral, you walk across this vast tiled space, and then you go inside this tiny little church, which is more or less as it was. And you can sit in there and meditate, and it's marvelous. Swamiji said the first time he meditated in there, he felt the sweetness of St. Francis was just almost overwhelming. And he prayed, how is it possible for one human being to be so sweet? And the intuition he had was two, two. First, by considering everyone in the world as your brother and sister and by never judging. He said, above all, by never judging. And it's, you know, it's always stayed, he wrote it very vividly, and it's always stayed in all of our minds. By, by discerning, but not judging. Well, there you are. The person's going down this track. It's interesting because the three, uh, the three sentences that Swami just added to this, the festival of light, the last one is, in God, all are equal. In Jesus Christ, Lord Krishna, all the masters, and even those, who commit, those on earth who commit the greatest sins, all are equal in their souls before God. And someone who was listening to it, Swami's been editing the words, he said as soon as that was written, he thought immediately of Hitler and felt inside himself this rejection of what had just been said to him. You know, how could Hitler be equal in his soul to Jesus Christ and to Lord Krishna? Because we automatically think that those who are more advanced are are, are in their essence, different from those who are less advanced. But it isn't true. You know, Hitler's soul was exactly as pure as Jesus' soul. It's just Hitler wasn't behaving properly. It wasn't that he was darker in his essence. He was just clouding that essence with wrong behavior. But once he stopped behaving badly... There was nothing about him that wasn't already divine. It's quite a, an amazing way to think about it. So I think Swamiji said the only difference between a saint and a sinner is the way they behave. Which, when you stop and think about it, is very interesting because as soon as you repudiate your wrong action, you don't have to acquire good qualities. You simply cease to block the flow of those good qualities. You wash the mud off the gold. And that's, what, that's where the masters look. And that's what Swamiji, that story he's often told us, of the dream he had, in which he saw thousands of people of all different types, you know, young and old, good and bad, and their behavior, rich, poor, famous, unhappy, happy. And he realized that every single one of them in their essential nature, was going forward in search of bliss. And that everything else about them was just a cover over a completely um, single singularity, single, uh, a single reality that defined everybody. And then he talked about how the great love that awoke in his heart for every single human being, because underneath it all, there is just one reality, and that reality is the same, which is the, the search for bliss, and in truth, the inevitable fulfillment of that bliss. 
Swamiji's comment also in terms of um, dealing with people's behavior that isn't that you discern to be other than it ought to be is he says when he sees people doing things that he knows are going to bring them unhappiness, what he thinks of is the day when they have when they finally realize God and come to a full state of bliss and how much sweeter that moment will be because of the contrast it will make to the consciousness that they have right now. And that to me is, that's the most fun one, I think. Oh, well, this person is making himself so miserable and because he's so miserable now, think how really happy he'll be when it's finally done. Because there's nothing that prevents. And of course, that's where the master's have the capacity to change us because they project toward us such a complete sort of casual conviction about that reality, like telling Swamiji that, oh yes, you'll be like Jesus Christ, that will come, that will come. And then all of a sudden the thought enters our own consciousness. Well, maybe it will. Maybe I don't have to live other than that. Well, any comments or thoughts on that? So Amici often repeats the same stories like he's repeated to us many times that dream he had in Florence. And every time I hear it, you try to get a little deeper into what that might feel like and what that might mean. You just sort of hear him telling a story that you may know, but you know, following it image by image all the way through and trying to enter into the consciousness that would have that perception um, helps us to learn each time. So it's not just an idea oh yeah, I know where this story's going, kind of energy. But like, what is the step-by-step reality of that? Why would the realization that everyone is seeking bliss lead to an overwhelming sense of love for everyone? That's the part of it that I've been meditating on. Why would, that, why would the result of that be a sense of love for people? You know, I guess because you would see the sameness, because, of the, because it would be deeply touching to realize that because you would think that you would see the divine. As Swamiji said, you would see in them the God you already love, and therefore loving them would just be automatic. In my book, I told the story about when we were in Disneyland, and we were among the crowds at Disneyland, and Swamiji looked out over the vast crowd and said, imagine um, not merely loving all these people, but being all these people. He said that was Master's state of consciousness. And in that moment, it just moved us all so deeply, we sat down on the sidewalk and started meditating right in the middle of Disneyland. <laughs> so, yes, please comment. In ourselves, um, um, we realize in moments like that that they are us and we are them. They are, yeah. And so that kind of accounts perhaps for the feeling of amazing love. There's a sense of absolute unity. Yeah. Because we're not just talking about what they're doing, but also what we're doing. Yeah, the, the, se- the illusion of separateness com- disappears, mm. and that's beautiful. Yeah, of course, because unity is what gives that feeling of the heart. Yeah, that's a very nice way to think about it. Huh. Amazing. Okay, any other thoughts or anything? Yes, Liz, uh, could you pass that forward? Just a question about the uh, the new ending to the festival. The, of the last three words, extra three words. Yeah. Well, 
Was, wasn't there more? I mean, no, were there just like several lines, new lines in there? Or am I... the, there were three sentences, um, uh, yeah, close to the end, actually. It's all the last page, yeah. So what was the question? Um, how did the change come about? Did he just give you the new ending and say, <laughs> here, I thought of something new? Or? No, it, it, was, it was more deliberate than that. Could I'll you tell share? You. Yeah, let me just, I'll just have it because it's, I stuck it all in here. Um, Sahil is less familiar with this than others, but this Festival of Light is this uh, ritual that we've been doing for 25 years at our Sunday services. I mean, this is a slight diversion, but there's no po- point in not putting this out in conversation. Um, Swamiji wrote this in Assisi about 25 years ago. He, he took a seclusion in Assisi and... This, the idea that, it would, that to create a, a ritual that we would do on Sundays as part of our Sunday worship service came to him in that seclusion. He'd been thinking about it for many years, um, but he'd never really felt the exact inspiration to do it. And the inspiration for the festival came and he wrote it all out just in a flow. And he just felt like the words were all given to him. And it was inspired by the Catholic Mass, he said, at that time, Ananda was in, in close association with a charismatic Catholic group um, from uh, southern Italy at that time. And we were just starting out in Italy, so there was just a, a lot of um, Catholic influence. We were in Assisi. We had just moved to Assisi. Ananda's work. When I say we, I just mean cosmically Ananda. I wasn't there. Um, and then it became part of our ritual, and many of you have come in the last two and a half decades or were born in the last two and a half decades. You know, this is the only reality you've ever seen. Um, when Ananda established itself in Italy and in Europe, the Festival of Light was always part of it. When we went to India in 2003, um, there was a conversation right at the very beginning, literally, when, when people were just assembling, and I was there in that, at that moment, and talking to Swamiji about how we were going to start Ananda's work in India, someone asked him, should we do the Festival of Light in India? And Swami responded, not yet. He said, lead with Kriya. You know, just start with Kriya because that's just more clear and people in India will understand that. So that's how they started. Now it's, you know, 2012. It's been nine years. But the Festival of Light is only occasionally performed in India. Um, It's not... Well, there's, I mean, Sunday morning worship is a Western uh, idea in the first place, but they have weekly satsangs, but the Festival of Light does not play a central role in it. It's only occasionally performed. And I've just, as just wondering, you know, just because I've been over there a few times, I've just been wondering whether it ought to be more central because of, I mean, India is the land of ritual, and... uh, because of the importance of group worship and group ritual to creating group consciousness and to communicating. And for the the exact reason that Swami created this Festival of Light was so that every time we had our weekly satsang, which is what I'll call it so it can transfer to the Indian context, no matter what the limited uh, changing subject was, there would always be a complete statement about what our path was about. And everybody would be able to enter in and understand. If you were just coming for the first time, you would get a picture of what this was about, and you wouldn't just think it was about whatever narrow topic you happened to be talking about that week. Getting along with your spouse, 
doing a little better in meditation, how to magnetize money. I mean, you could talk about so many different things, but, but reading this ritual every week, everybody gets the whole picture every time. Plus, as Swamiji said elsewhere, even when people meditate together, they don't always meditate together. They just meditate in the same room. But when you're doing a ritual together, you're bringing your consciousness more together and you're creating magnetism that way. So I, have, I often ask the people in India, because I'm not living there, you know, do you do the festival? Why not? Almost always the answer I got back was that it's too Christian. It's too much about Jesus. Yeah. And, that, and Swami's response to that was, well, yes, it was modeled on the Mass, you know. But, so I actually read through it. And I realized that it's not really that much about Jesus. There's just a few places. And Indians, the, the country of India, is not so keen on Christianity because missionaries have come in and been pretty rude. And, you know, the whole um, history of England's oppression of India is not that far back. So their attitude toward Jesus isn't 100% good. And anybody that they think of as being a Christian missionary is not really welcome. In fact, when Swami was expelled from SRF and they wanted to keep him from being able to go back to India, they reported to the Indian government that he was both a CIA agent and a Christian missionary in disguise. And both of those were sufficient to prevent him from getting a visa back into the country for a decade. Because being a Christian missionary in disguise was a pretty serious uh, charge. Okay, so all of that. And then just because I like to talk about these things, you know, we've just been talking, a lot of us. And then someone raised a very interesting question, which is, is it necessary? Master talks about it's time for East and West to come together. So here we are in the West, and we have the Guru's pictures, and we're all keen on Babaji, the deathless Himalayan yogi, and we're going Sri Ram, J. Ram, J. J. Ram, you know, we're just doing, absorbing all the East and having a great time doing it. Is it equally important for the Indians to accept Jesus? Yeah, and see, there's just sort of, there's been this instinctive thought that somehow they don't have to do that or that we have to be careful not to make them think they have to do it. But, I, but if we have to accept the, the Eastern side, why wouldn't the East have to accept the Western side? In the same way that we accept Jesus, which is to realize that that which has been done by ignorant followers does not denigrate the master. It has nothing to do with the master himself. It just has to do with what people have done since then. Because we're no more um, church-oriented. We're not Catholic. We're no more Catholic. We're in favor of Jesus, but we're not in favor of the churchianity, so to speak. Nobody could answer those questions, so I said, if I had a chance, I'd ask him. So I did have a chance. I had a moment where I said, because I know, I have something to ask you if you're, at some point, if you want to hear it. Well, how about now? You know, I, knew, I knew his energy. So I explained a little bit of this. And to the question, does the East have to accept, learn about Jesus as he really was and accept him? His answer was, of course. And then as, as to whether, because it's Master's mission. And he said, and what if Master himself was Jesus? which is some, you know, a thought that Swami's not willing to commit to, but that he always raises. If Master himself was Jesus, of course they have to accept that. A previous incarnation of the Guru they're accepting now. And whatever it is, the relationship is close. And then I talked about the festival, and I said there's only a few places where it's really about Jesus. And the, the line, Jesus appeared to the great Master Babaji, the lights on the high altar of my church have been growing dim. 
Though still lit on lower altars of good works, the noble taper of inner communion burns low and is ill-attended. I said, Swamiji, what do the Indians care about Jesus' church? And Swami's response was, but the situation is exactly the same over there as it is here. And then he said further, and that's what happened. That's how this path, you know, Master came to unite East and West at the behest of Jesus in relationship to Babaji. It's fundamental to our path. You can't just take it out. So that one he just dismissed. Um, Then there's a couple of other places where we use the word Christ, and it it means Christ consciousness. It does not mean Jesus, but it's not stated that way. Um, So uh, one of them is united in Christ's love, and Swamiji just thought that one was just fine. The other is, may the light of Christ shine upon you, and he added, may the light of Christ, the infinite consciousness, shine upon you. And then he disappeared into his room and he asked for a copy of the festival because, as he said, I've done so much work in my life, I can't remember it all. And so he asked for a copy of it and then the next morning or later that day he emerged with this change in this place. Subsequently, he, he credited it to me as having raised the question of whether the, the festival was too sectarian for the Indian audience, which I thought was an interesting way for, of him to have heard what I said. I asked if it was really too much about Jesus, but what that meant was, was it too sectarian? And the only actual sectarian, really sectarian statement is here is we celebrate the grace of God that he's turned anew to earth through our line of gurus. And then all of a sudden, that which has really been about everyone has really become about our line of gurus. So there he added three sentences to make it universal. And he said, this grace... We celebrate the grace of God that has come anew to, our, to earth through our line of gurus, Jesus, Babaji, Krishna, Lahiri, Sri Yukteswar, and Master. This grace is eternally channeled to mankind by great masters in every religion. So he universalizes it with that first sentence. And then he explains why our gurus are significant. It has been given new clothing by our gurus to reflect man's dawning awareness that matter is only a manifestation of divine energy. In other words, this is Dwapara Yuga. This is a new expression for Dwapara Yuga. And though, even though all masters bring something new, this is the current manifestation right now, for good reason. This is their new message. And then he adds, In God all are equal, not only Jesus Christ, Lord Krishna, and great saints everywhere, but even in essence those on earth who have sinned most greatly. He did say, the greatest sinners on earth. And then Dharmaraj wrote him and said, Master said, never call yourself a sinner. <laughs> so he changed, he, he changed it one more time. Those on earth who have sinned most greatly. Now, everybody's waiting to see if this is going to go through more iterations. Being early adapters, which is a phrase I learned. Uh, Ananda Palo Alto, especially Asha, is an early adapter. We always rush out there at the front of the line and do it first. So it's just a piece of paper, and as many times as he changes it, we can keep changing it. But it, this has stood for about a day and a half, so it might be. There's a, there's a certain... Yes, last Sunday. And I knew when, I, when we said it last Sunday that the language was really clunky. And in fact, even as he was leaving the house... He actually, when you all were waiting outside, he actually sat down with the paragraph in his hand and a pen 
But I had messed up his computer, and he had printed out the wrong version. And so he looked at it, and he just knew it wasn't the latest version, and he kind of just was a little bewildered and then just left because it was too confusing to keep straight. But that, of course, was a clue that it wasn't going to stand. So, so that was how it happened. And, and so now he's... Now, um, I, the, the, the question has been brought to his attention, which I don't think he was really thinking about as to how it related to India and whether or not it would be. And what he will actually do next, I don't know. But at least the little pot that we'd been stirring in our living room here has now sort of gone its full circle and this is where it's come to. Because, you know, questions like that are absolutely central to the future of our work and how we orient ourselves, you know, between this path and India. Because as Westerners and as Indians, well, all of us, this path is a new dispensation. And when, when I lived for the first 10 years at Ananda Village, and those first 10 years especially, 71 to 81, were very isolated. Um, we were deliberately isolated because Swamiji knew we needed to get really grounded in what we were doing. We just really would have nothing to give to people until we knew what we were doing. And he was pulling in all these you know, young people who, who didn't know anything, let's just put it like that. And he had to just gradually educate us to a great many things. And we sort of lived what I called the fantasy of an Indian ashram. And it wasn't all fantasy. We had our sage was there with us, and we were in a very, we were in a forest setting. We were living extremely simply. He was leading almost everything that happened. He often dressed, always dressed in Indian clothes for any um, ceremonial occasion. All summer long, he would often go around in a dhoti with a bare chest and a string of rudraksha beads, and he wore long hair. He had just come from India, you know, his years in India. We all felt totally at home with that. Um, the paths didn't have gravel, so they were just soft, dusty paths, and you could walk barefoot along these dusty paths in the summer, and it was very India fantasy. That's all I can say. Um, and so we thought we were Hindus, more or less, knowing zilch about Hinduism, but we thought we were Hindus. I thought, if you'd asked me, I would have thought we might be Hindus, until I went to India, and I realized we were just about as Hindu as we were Catholic. <laughs> that there were like vague traces in what we were doing of what was Hinduism, just as there are vague traces of Catholicism in what we were doing. But we are, we are equally not, both of them. And, it, and that was when I really got that, that Master's teaching is not Indian. It's a new expression. See, from here, we could imagine that it was. But see, now we're going to India, and this is the problem that Swami had when he was over there, and this is what frustrated him so much. When he arrived in India in 1958 as a a leader for SRF, he felt that the SRF members had no idea what Master had brought, that they just thought that there's been lots of great teachers and here's another. And they were just more or less following their same Hindu rituals and they're just all their normal ways of doing things and just putting master on top of it. And they just didn't get. And and then SRF put Krishna's picture on the altar because they got nervous about Jesus being there. So they added Krishna. That's when they added Krishna so that the Hindus wouldn't think this was Christianity. 
Um, Swamiji, in India, what he's done is he's had a painting made in which there's a picture of Jesus with Krishna behind him because he's sensitive to it also. But SRF just added Krishna. So all of a sudden, you really are Hindu because you've just got this picture of Krishna on the altar. You're back right where you were. And Swami was just appalled. They had no idea what they really had there. And that was part of what he was trying to make happen in 58 to 62. But now our own devotees have gone back, and it's very hard. It's, you know, you step into a new culture, Indian people are coming in, and, uh, you know, they naturally bring their background with them. And it happens on this side, too, a little bit less, because with these masters on the altar, it's really hard to just walk in and be exactly who you were, because there is no uh, precedent for in Christianity or Judaism, which is mostly where we're from, for an ever-living Himalayan master. You just don't know what to do with that. And even if you're a Christian, you don't have Jesus with the Indian gurus. So it's been broken a little bit. But in India, it still has to be figured out. As, as, so that... Because we have to get the vibration right. Because the vibration is what's going to carry on, carry on. And we can't be appeasing the existing consciousness just because people are more comfortable with that. And and oddly enough, on this side, we've had to break away from an inclination to be Hindu, to to want to do Indian chants, to want to sort of, you know, deal with the deities because a lot of us are really happy in that. And it's very natural to us, but it isn't really what Master brought. uh, Saranya has a question. So it, it's a strange thing. We've had, to, we've had to fight less against Christianity than against Hinduism in the West. Okay, Saranya. One of the things that I think drew me to this path was always a sense that everything is directional and that you can grow slowly. Right. So um, even when I was starting here and actually becoming a disciple, I wasn't really sure what the relationship was with all these guys, you know. But Jesus I knew, and the rest of them, you know, and, and, and Master I sort of knew. And, and with that, I was given permission to go exactly. forward. And that really helps because then little by little, exactly. you know, you, you then, you know, I always say that Master just wormed his way into my heart. Mm-hmm. But it was that being able to grow slowly and not feeling like, you know, if you don't believe this, you are a sinner. If you don't accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know, you're going to, you know, where? So that, that slow growing, you know, what you've said many times, put it on the shelf. If you don't agree with it, put it on the shelf and wait. You know, that kind of thing helps so much. You yeah. know, I can see where the people who are going over to do the teaching have to have the right vibration. But the rest of us folks who are just sitting there, you know, you just, you're kind of hoping that you'll learn what vibration means. Exactly. exactly. And the other thing is that I remember listening to Master in one of his, um, the talks, you know, CD talk, when he was talking about Babaji, and he said right there, you know, you may not believe this, but, and he went on to talk about Babaji. So he acknowledged that, you know, in, what was it, the 30s or whatever, that people might find it hard to believe. It was a Himalayan, you know, yogi still alive. Yeah. But, but again, that attitude of take it or don't, you know, here it is. And I, it, that whole attitude, that's, I think, one of the strongest vibrations that's helpful oh, in, to grow on the path, I think. You know, when Swamiji was writing about this, about you know, crediting it with the idea that we don't want to be sectarian, and as Swami says, not that we ever have been sectarian, which we never have been sectarian. People are so, I laugh about it. People are so 
getting their fists up, you know, so fast about it. And I have to ask, have you ever seen us be this way? Never. And, you know, in the Indian side of this, when we were talking about the festival, I think in that first conversation, he said, well, I don't want to force it on people. Exactly. I don't want, I don't want them to think just like that, that if it's not, if it doesn't, if it doesn't, if it's not a natural expression of what's happening, I don't want to force a form when there's not the, the soil has not been plowed sufficiently. And that was why in 2003 he said not yet. But now it's the point where, you know, it's just, it's just a question. I'm not, I'm not living there. I don't know what the real truth of it is, but now he's, he's thinking about it. It'll be interesting to see what happens next, you know, with all of this. Okay, we have questions. Katyayani, who lives in India, might have something to say, who is not merely from India, as some of you are, but actually lives there now, <laughs> despite her physical presence in this room. Okay. Um, so on one hand, uh, you know, we have to preserve the vibration, especially in India when the work is just started. And, you know, we have to carry on the vibration of Ananda. And on the other hand, Master said that India will take care of itself. So how does these two, I mean, how would uh, India take care of itself with, you know, I mean, uh, being by itself? And not well, yeah. Ma- Master's words were, to this was something that was a big part of SRF, which is you don't have to worry about the work in India because the Indians will organize it themselves. It doesn't, this was Master's own words. It's not like America's going to have to manage YSS, as it was called in India, because Indians will know what to do because, of course, you know, the understanding of spirituality is so deeply into that culture. This is where all of this comes from. Um, But that doesn't mean they don't need to be instructed uh, I think it's, it was just Master wanting to make sure that it doesn't become too centralized, that it doesn't become too arrogant, that we don't think that just because he lived in America, everything is known. I mean, you could think of lots of different reasons. But several of the friends that we have in India have commented, good heavens, it's not whether you're from India or from America, it's whether you have any idea of, of what we're supposed to be doing here. <laughs> And so what you need is is in-tune, seasoned leadership, and it really makes no difference what the passport is. But also, merely having the, you know, the passport of the country that they're living in does not mean that you know what we're supposed to be doing either. It, but, but that direction of... I mean, that's the way it went, worked in Europe, too. It started out seated from America, and for a number of years there were a lot of Americans there, and then just simply gradually as you know, many Europeans began just to understand what we were doing. The Americans just pulled out and either went on to India or came back because, in fact, it's more effective if it's run uh, for the most part. The language is better, the cultural understanding. Um, Otherwise, plus, you know, just the sheer size and magnitude of India, you would have to empty all the uh, Ananda ashrams in America to even make the tiniest impact over there. But, But... from my point of view, and this is just me, and this has nothing to do with nationality, there is a unique message here. And I have been in India enough times, and I'm not a romantic. I'm not, a, I'm not sentimental. And even though I feel very at home there and I love the culture, you know, the first time I went to some arity somewhere, I noticed that it was extremely external, that nobody knew what was going on, and that it was not at all expiring. It was just completely noisy. It was a total mess. And I just wasn't, like, so enamored of it that it was so wonderful. 
It was, it was exactly what it was, and it was perfectly fine. But it wasn't Master's teachings just because he came from India. And to me, the issue is exactly the same everywhere. It's that we have to get in tune with this ray, this guru, and then we'll know what to do. As soon as we're in tune, we'll know what to do. And that attunement, some people have it from past lives, the first time they see Master's picture. Others have to work through all the other intellectual or emotional uh, issues that cloud our perception. But attunement is a lifelong project. Um, but just as Swamiji said when he first went over, I mean, I don't, with what was going on with SRF, is just, it's very subtle what Master teaches. And there's just no way somebody could know it right away. The problem in India is a slightly different problem because here people know nothing did know nothing, were extremely suspicious of everything. Their people know a great deal, but, but they don't know what Master taught, and therefore there's confusion because people think they know. And so you have to unravel it from a different angle. But it's perfectly doable. It just has to be done and will work itself out in that way. And because of the sheer population of India, I mean, we laugh. I mean, one... One meditation class, the, the numbers that you can draw in into one meditation class on one weekend, you know, is bigger. There are more people in that class than there is in any Ananda, you know, all of them combined. You know, the biggest classes that I was just, we just wept over the numbers of people that you could draw. It's, and it's because it's fertile soil. Anyway, so that, that would be my thought on that. Anything else? Yes. Sai Ganesh. Well, I can relate to a lot of things that you say because, yeah, I've been associated with YSS as well. And uh, even when I first uh, came to the path, and that, that, that's pretty much where we start. We think of uh, Master as one of the saints, that we know a lot of saints. Yeah, he's also one of the saints. And I'm pretty impressed with what he's written, so I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to follow him. It's, mm-hmm. it's pretty much the same attitude that all of us have. And slowly as we come and we, we, we try to make sense of what it is really, but now... Uh, after seeing the truth and what you say, it's actually, I'm, I'm still thinking over what my own thoughts are because uh, it's been a little different. That's all right. <laughs> it's been a little different from my perspective because. Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Because as you said very rightly here, uh, you break out of what you are to get onto the path, path yeah. and there it's not so much. So, People don't really take the effort to actually break the barriers and then take the plunge. Mm-hmm. It's, it's they're more at home, just just right. going the way they are and just adjusting to it. So, and that's that's I that's pretty much been the case with myself as well because uh-huh. it's not been very different. I come from a very very orthodox family, so uh, I have been very I, I was very religious. My parents are very religious, and I have been a Hindu all my life. So it's not been very. Uh, the miracles have not been tough to believe. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very natural for me to accept it. Uh-huh. Uh, but then the way I saw it, after I came onto the path, because as a young adult, like probably when I was 15 uh-huh. or 16, I questioned a lot of things. And we have, we, uh, we have a lot of ceremonies and rituals and things yeah. like that. And I never invested myself emotionally in any of them. And right. uh, I didn't make any sense of them. And uh, both, I have a sibling as well. And he sort of... Uh, he became very, very less associated with religion. And I was looking for an alternate. I was just trying to break out of it. 
Uh-huh. I was I was pretty desperate, and I wanted to make sense out of sense of it. I really wanted something that was more meaningful than just uh, doing something physical. And but then, I mean, coming to the point, after I came onto the came onto the path, a lot of things started making sense to me, and I don't know how, but I have become a more devout Hindu. Yeah. And uh, uh-huh. it's so strange, and I've started making sense of so many things. Like the simplest example I can think of right now is. Uh, in my family, when we wake up in the morning, my my mother does not cook before taking a bath. It's because yeah. it's it's very, uh, it's just the way it has been. And we none of us can eat anything in the house un- until she offers rice to the gods and right. things like that. So I never and there have been times when when she was not at home, I really never bothered. Obviously, I don't subscribe to the belief, and uh, uh-huh. I, I I just uh, eat. Uh, without, I, I sometimes have eaten, <laughs> have have had breakfast without taking a bath, which my mother would not approve of. Uh-huh. And uh, so, but then it, it was so strange when I came to the U.S. and slowly I somehow I, probably very naturally I was just absorbing master's writings and what the path was about. I had this, I developed this habit of doing that myself more at an emotional level. I was not standing at an altar, but. Right. Whenever, uh, whenever I was having the first meal in the morning, whenever I cooked anything, uh, I couldn't really eat it without before uh, imagining the ritual in my head and trying to offer it. And, and slowly, slowly, all these rituals were coming back to me in a very different way. This time it was a lot more emotional, a lot more uh, symbolic than yeah. the actual physical doing of things. But yeah. it, it was just like a lot of things were coming back to me, which I was pushing away. Right. Uh, so it's just... It was it was a little different from my uh, way of looking at things, but obviously I have to still think over the whole point and the message and how we have to still break out of the barriers and accept this path as uh, a message in itself and not try to stick on to our own inclinations and judgments and things like but that. But that's actually, I mean, what you describe is exactly valid. Um, let's see, there's, a, there's an issue with it. See, because much of Hinduism is a true religion and much of what's involved there had a true origin point. And whether or not it's an empty ritual or a ritual that genuinely uplifts your consciousness entirely depends on how you do it. Some things ha- have no meaning, but, uh, but many things do. So it would be natural as your consciousness becomes sensitized that you would become more conscious of the true vibration behind things. I have sat in RT rituals that were deeply moving because the people doing them had a deep consciousness of what they were really doing. There's a pujari who does the um, puja at the uh, Mahasamadhi Mandir for Ananda Ma. It's absolutely exquisite to be there when he does that. There's not, you know, it's it's real worship. And I've been in other places where it was not, because the potential is there. Uh, and but in terms of being on this path, so it's not as if you have to re- just repudiate everything wholesale, but. You know, this is a path in which we're working with the energy of something and not the form of it. So you have to go back to the actual energy of it and ask yourself whether you can either inspire this with the right energy or whether this brings out of me the right energy. Um, and then we'll just have to see what, what, what is and isn't left in. That's why um, Swamiji commented that if we, if we do the festival, he said, he wants it to be the same all over the world. Because this is a global movement and he wants a non... He doesn't want to have one version for India and one version for America. That was one of the questions he answered. So, you know, if it gets altered in some way, needs to be altered some way in India, then it will also end up needing to be altered in America. He wants it, he wants it to work all over the world 
this is a long legacy he's leaving. What will happen as um, Ananda becomes well understood by um, uh, people who live in India who are Indian and how it will be uniquely expressed, it will just be extremely interesting to see. And, you know, it's a creative work on this side. We're always um, doing creative things here. And some of the creative things that we do, Swami says, that was a really bad idea. And some of the creative things that we do, he says, that's wonderful. Let's, in- let's incorporate that. So you have to have the nerve to stretch out. And then I say to people, you feel free to be creative as long as you're willing to, to hear what the feedback is on it. And so it'll, Swami won't always be with us. But over time, people who, who are in tune with essentially what it is will, will be just as Swamiji has been. You know, a great deal of what Ananda is, Swamiji has created. It, it's not exactly what Master did, but it's exactly in tune with what Master did because it, it has to be an ever-new process. So we'll see how those things go. I mean, you know, Diwali is a big, big holiday in, in India. It's not much of a holiday in America. But Christmas, Swami commented, he just talking about being in, in India this year for Christmas, he remarked, I want to have a big Christmas celebration this year. He said that a couple of months ago, and I, I heard it because of this other question. Well, isn't that interesting? He may really try to, you know, start bringing people a true understanding of Jesus by bringing a real um, uh, inner communion Christmas to people. So that I know Christmas is celebrated in India, but not Master's Christmas. So that, that would be a way to start, and then everybody could... I mean, none of us had ever even heard of Babaji. So the mere fact that uh, Indian people have to get to know Jesus is just like, welcome to the club. I mean, we had to do it, you know? <laughs> So it's, there's, no, there's nothing wrong with coming to get, getting to know this uh, new consciousness in a new way. And then, as we all go back and forth across the world, Babaji and Jesus are in charge. We have to be in tune with both of them. That's right there in the Bhagavad Gita. You know, they're in charge, and we have to, we have to be on their, on their wavelength. So we'll see. Any other comments or thoughts on any of that? It's important for all of us to think about these things. You know, some of you may never go to India. Some of you may end up spending more time there than you think you, you, than you plan to. I mean, who knows? But all of this has to do with being disciples and being responsible for this p- path. And Swamiji is still living and will be alive for a few more years, but we can't just passively sit behind him. Even if we are not decision makers, we, we need to apply our creative intelligence to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it, because then we will be able to do it. Swamiji's genius as a teacher has always been that he does not just give us his conclusions, he gives us the thoughts that led to those conclusions. In other words, he teaches us how to think. And so that when we meet a problem that he's never outlined for us, we know how to think. I I went to the science fair of the Living Wisdom School on Saturday, which was very impressive, and it was so it was it was an extraordinary demonstration of excellent teaching not only because every child fifth through through eighth grade just stood up with a straight spine and explained their experiment to you and really understood it but you could it was all extremely orderly every child had understood how you have a hypothesis how you experiment how you draw conclusions 
You know, like when you get a template like that, you can use that for your whole life. And so many aspects of, of Ananda's work in watching Swamiji sort them out, what we're learning is how do you think about spiritual issues? Even the fact that the question I asked was whether there was too much Jesus, but he translated that into, is it too sectarian? Which is, of course, a much more realistic question. And that caused him to look at a different aspect of it where I was going through and underlying the word Christ, which was a a part of it, but not really the part of it. Is, Is it too sectarian? Is it universal enough? And he said, not quite. So he added three sentences to it to make it so, which was, you know, a flaw in there that we hadn't been looking at. And that's why I say we were in Assisi, we were in India, and even if I never set foot in any of those places, it's, it's our responsibility to, to add creative energy, intelligent, informed creative energy. Because ideas come from everywhere. One of the reasons, well, he was in here. Let's see. He was generous and he extended to others, you know, he let them have the last word. I'm always so touched when Swami says, well, Jyotish asked me to do this and so I'm doing it. Dharmaraj pointed this out. You know, he, he takes the trouble to let us know that he's listening and that it's, it's not futile for us to think that we shouldn't just... It's exactly the opposite of what he experienced in SRF where... You know, Taramata said, no one has a right in an organization even to think except for the board of directors. I mean, it's 100% the antithesis of that. A person writes and points out a fundamental teaching of master's teaching. He said, don't call yourself a sinner. Oh, so Swami changes the words. You know, just so that we feel comfortable having an idea. Actually, because while changes were being made, Dambara wrote me about what he perceived to be a grammatical mistake. And he said, you know, and I, essentially I said, you're on your own with this one. You know, meaning that I'll talk to Swami about deep philosophical issues, but I'm not going to waste my, I'm not going to waste my precious minutes on grammar. But it was so funny is that like he wrote to Lakshman and Lakshman said that Darbar was about the 10th person who pointed this out. And it was a very complex point of grammar. And Lakshman gave him the whole long rationalization for it <laughs> and the different choices that were possible and so on. It was really... <laughs> I couldn't even read it. You can ask him. <laughs> but, but even that, you know, Swami had heard it. He'd heard it and he'd listened and he reasoned it out. Well, any other questions or thoughts on any of that? I've actually run us almost to nine, not quite to nine, but I've run us to nine as if we'd had a break. So if, if there is nothing else, I might just end at that point. And let me think. I'm actually, I'm slightly behind, but I can catch up. <laughs> okay, anything else that people want to talk about before? As you all know, Swamiji was extremely well when he came. He's enjoying a period of great good health, which is really fun for all of us. So he's really um, doing well, and so it's going to be a lot of fun this summer, I think. We'll see what happens. His attention is enormously on developing the work in India because um, we've, we, we have this possibility of land being given to us in Gorgaon, a very, very small little corner of land and a, a spiritual center built on that land for us to use. And all of that is a, is a, a gift to us. And, it, and, and there's, it's, it's like it's, it puts Swamiji back exactly where he was in 1961 when he had made that exact arrangement with the Indian government 
or land in Delhi then was going to be given to him and he was going to put a temple on it and that was going to be the real launching of Ananda's work, of Master's work in India. We're right exactly back there, right at this moment. And in Swami's own mind, I, I joke about it, it was like he, his foot was in the air to take the next step for Master's work in India when SRF pulled the rug out from under him. And for all these years, he's just stood with his foot in the air <laughs> and it's like finally put his foot down <laughs> and in his own mind, it's just a, the next. But to, to, if we have a significant um, temple recognizable in a public place in the, most, the, the capital region of, of India, which is no longer New Delhi, but is now Gorgao, um, it could really finally really start making things moving. And so it's why he's going back to spend five months there next year. And it would just be really interesting to see. You know, we all watch with great interest to see what happens. And we'll, from time to time, tootle across the ocean to see. So we'll see what comes of it. Okay. Actually, I, want, I will say one more thing because Swami himself announced it at Ananda Village yesterday. But to, to me personally, he said that I need to think more globally about what I'm doing and not quite so locally. And whether that means he wants, he, had, he spoke of wanting me to travel more. Um, I'm starting it by really trying to really up the ante on what I'm doing through the internet. Because um, even if I travel, it won't do me any good if people don't know who I am before I get there. Otherwise, it's just, otherwise, I know what that feels like and I know what that project is. And I don't think I have enough years left in my life for that project. Um, and also, if I do. Um, travel more, the more there is available on the internet, the more impact um, I could have. Because I only speak English, you know, the, the, even though Swami spoke of the globe, you know, it would really mean more English-speaking countries, which puts me closer to India. But I have no idea what that means. He, he mentioned my name, and I haven't heard him say it, but he came to, yesterday to the village Sunday service. He didn't give it. He just showed up and greeted people. But he, he mentioned in the context of saying to everyone, you know, these are great teachings, and we have an obligation to share them. You're not here just to have a comfortable, nice life. Master said, you know, youth should go north, south, east, and west. And then he talked about the issue of communities, but I haven't heard what he said. I've just had it reported to me by two different people. And it sounded different <laughs> from both of them. So I don't know what he said. But it's probably on the internet now. But he also mentioned that he mentioned to, to Asha that she should travel more. So I didn't want you all to hear it first from Ananda Village and come back. I know. <laughs> I hear, I see what you're saying. I, can, I see you, Saranya. It's crossing my, yeah. There are, there are, there are big, there are big issues. Yeah. No, there's, there are big issues involved. But I travel a lot anyway. So it would just be a question of traveling in a different way. And you have to be based somewhere. It's not like... So I don't know what it means. You know, I've been working with the Internet, and I'm just going to work a lot more with the Internet. Um, and I, but I've never... I've allowed what I'm doing on the Internet to just kind of evolve. And I have essentially made it an Ananda Palo Alto enterprise in which I'm buried. But what I can do is I can pull myself out of Ananda Palo Alto and make myself, myself, and I can also be much more proactive in terms of, of uh, d- letting people know, letting the world know, you know, that Swamiji has a spokesperson who is <laughs> a little more like everyone else. 
little less like him and a little more like everyone else. I mean, maybe there's a nicer way to say that. I don't exactly know. You know, if you're in the swamp, you talk about the alligators. That's how Savitri put it. You know, if you're in the forest, you talk about the trees. And, you know, that's where we all live. So I'm a translator for him. So we'll see what, it, what all that means. If anybody has any good ideas, let me know. And he, he said he would think about it. I'm thinking about it. And this was only like two days, so I, I mean, I'm thinking. I mean, I've already started with the Internet. Amit, God bless him, um, has taken all the videos that exist, or many of the videos that exist, and made a YouTube, put them all on the YouTube channel. If you go into YouTube and you write my name now, you get seven pages of videos that were all, they were all, they were all available, but they were never in one place. See, this is what I mean about just like making it more organized. Even when you go on the Ananda Palo Alto site, I mean, it's all there, but it's just chaos. I mean, it just kind of scrolls down. It's not organized by topic. It's not easily to, to access. We, could, we can make it all much more accessible. And then I do need to create shorter, inner, shorter video content because everybody is more... I mean, I hesitate if it's 20 minutes, and almost everything I've done is 20 minutes or longer, so I need to create shorter content, more introductory content. So I was, I was, all this was on the, you know, on the back burner. Now I just have to pull it to the front burner. So. And I don't know about the other things that were on the front burner, where they go. That's the big issue at the moment. <laughs> do they go on the floor? Where do they go? Okay. So that was that. Lovely to talk to you all. As always, nice to have you with us. <laughs>